I want to tell you about an experience that I had when I was traveling just over a year ago. I was in Chattanooga uh, for work, and I went down into the lobby of the hotel that morning, which was my custom to just gather whatever newspapers they had down there and uh, at least feign like I was going to read them all. Always seem to hoard papers when I travel. And much to my surprise, two different national publications, including the Wall Street Journal, had as one of their lead stories a headline that said something to the effect of, CT scanned of charred scroll yields oldest biblical remnant after the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is just over a year ago, and this kind of caught my attention. And so I went on to read the article, and the article was talking about a charred, burned fragment that looked like a roll um, that was dark and burnt uh, that had been discovered in a village called Engedi in 1970. And they had just gotten to the point 45 years later where they could unroll this and actually, through different technology, read it and see what it actually said. Well, what they had come to find out was that it was from the Torah, which is from the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. It seemed at first to be insignificant. However, as the articles repeatedly said, to scholars' astonishment, the newly divulged text was exactly the same in both letters and format as the Bible's you hold in your hand today. Amazing. So as we hear the gospel reading, know that we are holding, in this case, in a bulletin, I guess, the most well-attested document in the history of the world. Please stand. For the reading of God's Word. Luke 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning 
himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. They told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the gospel of the Lord. Father, we pray simply this morning that you would show us your truth, and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. What is the most characteristic word of the Christian religion? Suppose you were asked to single out one word to carry and convey the cardinal truth of the gospel. What word would you choose? James Stewart, a professor of New Testament in Scotland, suggests it would have to be the word resurrection. That is what Christianity essentially is. It is a religion of resurrection. Paul, the apostle, says this as well in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, if there is no resurrection, we of all people are to be pitied. Christians are an Easter people. Christians are people of the resurrection. From our story in Luke 24 this morning, I want us to see in an overarching way that the resurrection is the manifestation of holistic hope. The resurrection from Luke 24 is the manifestation of hope in a holistic way. The resurrection from Luke 24 shows us hope embodied, alive, fleshed out and realized. And we need this. We oftentimes get confused about what hope really is. We use the words very flippantly. Even myself, who is going to ask us to think about hope differently, most emails, for example, that I begin say something to the effect of, I hope this finds you well. Oftentimes, I hope Tiger wins the Masters next week, which I really do. I hope, fill in the blank. J.I. Packer, a Christian scholar, helps distinguish very succinctly the difference between worldly optimism and Christian hope. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty, guaranteed by God Himself because of the resurrection. Optimism reflects ignorance as to, the, as to whether good things will ever actually come to be. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day and every moment beyond it, on the basis of God's own commitment, that the best is yet to come. Do you believe it? 
Do you hope, which is synonymous with belief, that the best is yet to come? My guess is you want to believe that, no matter where you're coming from. You want to believe that the best is yet to come. But there's serious doubt whether that's true. In fact, if you have any familiarity with the Christian narrative at all, just summarized in this gospel message that proclaims to us we're far worse than we've ever imagined, but we can cheer up because we're far more loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ than we've ever dared to dream. It almost sounds too good to be true. Or maybe the alternative is it's so good that it must be true. Pascal, the great philosopher and mathematician, said, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it may be true. The cure for this is first to show that religion or Christianity is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, Pascal says, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true. And then show them that it is. Luke 24 makes people wish and hope that it's true. And then Luke 24 shows us that it is. It's an unfolding narrative of hope. It's a manifestation of hope. It's hope embodied. It's hope realized in a holistic way. But once again, it hurts to hope. Does it not? It's hard to hope. I was at a concert recently with my family and one of the singers Ellie Holcomb actually was sharing a story about a song, and this impacted my whole family. My daughter still talks about it. She talks about having a tough year in their life and living a last couple years tough in our culture and our society in many ways. And she used the expression, it just seems that hope has been buried. And I think that's how many of us feel. We feel that hope has been buried in our own lives. We feel that hope has been buried in relationships. We feel that hope has been buried within our families. Maybe hope has been buried in your job. Hope has been buried in culture at large. It just seems that hope has been buried. Well, we're in good company. Hope was buried for these two people that Jesus was talking to on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Did you catch that in verse 21? As they're talking to Jesus, though they don't know it's Jesus, did you hear what they said? We had hoped that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was going to make all things new. We had hoped that all sad things would become untrue. We had hoped for a new day. Their hope at this moment was buried. We all know what it's like to experience hope that is buried. Interesting experience with hope being buried in an athletic event a few years ago that I was following in Major League Baseball. I don't know if you've ever heard of Major League Baseball. Not many people, I'm afraid, in Knoxville have. But this past week and weekend was what we call opening day, where there are actually professional baseball teams that play this game called baseball. 
Well, we lived in St. Louis prior to moving to Knoxville. And when you live in St. Louis, I promise you know there is such thing as Major League Baseball. It's kind of known, I want to say, throughout the world that the best fans, the most knowledgeable fans, the nicest fans, the winningest fans reside in St. Louis, Missouri and are fans of the St. Louis Cardinals. I was in St. Louis from 99 through 2004. 1999 was the year after Mark McGuire broke uh, the historic home run record in 1998. It was a great time to be in St. Louis. The Cardinals went to the World Series in 2004, went and won the World Series in 2006, and then were in it again in 2011. And I had gone in 04, I had gone in 06, and things were not working out for me to go, unfortunately, in 2011. And so there I am on my couch here in Knoxville watching game six against the Texas Rangers. And it's getting towards the end of the game. And the Cardinals are in trouble. It's game six, bottom of the ninth. They're down two, two outs, two strikes. Now, something to interject here. You only play nine innings. You only get three outs. And you only get three strikes. It's the bottom of the ninth. They're down by two. They're two men on base. Two outs, two strikes, David Freeze, St. Louis's third baseman who grew up and went to high school in St. Louis, up to the bat. Texas Rangers, strike away from their first World Series title ever. Cardinals fans everywhere have buried hope. The pitch comes and David Freeze hits a triple off the wall. Scores two, tie game. Nine to nine, goes into extra innings. This happens again in the tenth inning. Two men on, two outs, two strikes. Texas Rangers, one strike away from their first World Series title ever. Cardinal fans, hope is buried again. And Lance Berkman steps up to bat with two men on and hits a beautiful single into the outfield. Two-run score, tie game. They go into the 11th inning. First man up to bat at a tie score, bottom of the 11th. Next team that scores wins. Same guy, David Fariz, steps in the pitch over the center field wall. Cardinals win game six. And the historic broadcaster on KMX Radio, Mike Shannon, uses his similar refrain after David Freeze hits the ball. Get up, baby. Get up, baby. Get up. It's gone. Hope resurrected. The Cardinals go on to play and win game seven. Luke 24 meets people in the midst of having their hope buried. Bottom of the ninth, tenth, eleventh, fill in the blank. Two outs, two strikes. And what they need to hear is, get up, baby. Get up. And Christ in Luke 24 has gotten up. And hope is being manifested 
before their eyes. I want us to unpack in a little more detail what it looks like for this hope to be manifested, what it looks like for us to receive the resurrection as we see our minds must be engaged, our eyes must be open, and our hearts are to burn. Hope is manifested in Luke 24 through the resurrected Christ as we see Him engaging their minds, opening their eyes, and causing their hearts to burn. Christ engages their minds first and foremost just through dialoguing with them in conversation. I think it's unfortunately a common misconception that to be a Christian means to check your brains at the door. Broad evangelicals in the Western world have not done well to dispel this notion. However, the more and more we read the Scriptures, we see that Christianity is anything but a religion that is illogical or non-linear or doesn't hold weight intellectually or cognitively. We see this proven over and over, and we see it here as Christ is engaging in a conversation with these two people, the things that have happened. And specifically, as Christ meets them in the midst of their confusion, their questioning, and their slowness, He unfolds truth for them. We read in verses 25 and 26, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it necessary, was it not necessary, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. You see, what He was describing to them was redemption was going to come not from suffering, but through suffering. Resurrection and redemption do not remove us from suffering. They actually take Christ and us through suffering. Before we move on to their eyes being open, let's think about our minds being engaged by way of application just for a minute. Do you ever feel slow mentally? What about spiritually? Do you ever feel confused? Do you ever doubt? Do you ever misunderstand? Cheer up. You're in good company. Even those that knew Jesus, even those that walked with Him were slow, confused, and prone to misunderstanding. Another thing that I think is interesting about this, just from an apologetic standpoint, why would anyone, if they were making up a story, make up a story where the closest friends and disciples to a Savior doubted Him and did not re- recognize Him even as they were walking next to Him? Why would anyone make that up? It seems like it would detract from the message if you were going to make it up and make it fantastic and sensational. The last bit of application through this conversation is, how does Christ explain things to them? How does He assure them? Does He say, look, what are you talking about? I am the hope. Look at me. Don't you understand? Like, I'm embodied. What else do you need to know? I'm here. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He teaches them the Bible. He reviews the Old Testament and the New Testament for them. It's utterly amazing to me that here the resurrected Jesus, in order to sear into the minds of these disciples 
chooses to give him a Sunday school lesson. Straight from Moses and the prophets. This ought to increase our confidence in Scripture. But so hope is embodied as we see their minds engage. We also see hope embodied and manifested as their eyes were opened. Did you catch that in verse 30? This is where things start to make sense. Earlier in the text, we hear that their eyes or that they were not able to see him or not able to recognize him. There's some mystery here. You gather that on some level, God himself caused them to not recognize Christ, and then they themselves had things that would create aversions or barriers to them recognizing Jesus. Before we go a little deeper into what makes them recognize Jesus and what that means for us, I want to ask you a question. Do you recognize Jesus? Do you see Christ in this world? Do you see Him in your life? Do you see Him in all things? I think the truth is it's easy to miss Him. The Washington Post in 2007 did a sociological experiment and study where they placed a certain man in a subway station playing a violin. And they just wanted to see who would stop and stare and listen. As he stood in the subway station playing a violin for 45 minutes total, three minutes went by and a middle-aged man stopped to listen for a minute. A minute later, the violinist kept playing and a woman came by and put a dollar tip in his jar. A few minutes later, and for the first time, someone stopped for more than a few seconds. It was a three-year-old boy and listened to this violinist play. When it was all said and done, six people in the Washington, D.C. subway station stopped to hear this man play his violin, and he received $32 in his tip jar. The man that was playing the violin was Joshua Bell, one of the best violinists in the world. He was playing pieces by Bach that hardly anyone can play. And to just add to the intrigue, the violin he was playing was worth three and a half million dollars. He had just come off a tour in New York and Boston where every seat was sold out and every seat sold at a minimum for a hundred bucks. And he played in the Washington, D.C. subway and six people stopped and he got 32 bucks. No one saw him. No one heard him. No one understood the beauty that was before them. How much is that true about us and Christ in this world? It's really interesting the way that Jesus opens their eyes. He does so in a very normal and mundane way. And it's very important for us to understand this. What will the resurrection be like? What will the new heavens and the new earth be like? What will heaven be like? Well, our best evidence of what heaven will be like is actually the evidences we have in the New Testament of what Christ was doing in His resurrected body. And here in this story, what is Christ doing in His resurrected body? Floating in the clouds. Singing praise songs 
kind of hovering. No, he's just doing things like hanging out at people's houses, engaging in conversations, having meals with people. You see, when the Scriptures tell us about the new heavens and the new earth, and they tell us about resurrection, the Scriptures never tell us that God will make all new things. What do the Scriptures tell us? That He will make all things new. And that should comfort us. Because the new heavens and the new earth will not be lifted up into glory, but the new heavens and the new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down to our dinner tables, to our wine glasses, to the food we eat and the conversations we have and the roads we walk on. And Jesus opens their eyes in a very normal, mundane way as he sits here and has what N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, calls the first meal of the new creation. He references Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and their eyes were opened in a bad way. Here, these people eat of this bread and their eyes are opened in a good way as Christ institutes the Lord's Supper. Do you see Christ for who He is? Are your eyes opened? Before we move on to burning hearts, our last point. Abraham Kuyper was the prime minister of the Netherlands and a Christian. From 1901 to 1905, he ruled the Netherlands. And he famously said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry Mine. Do you see him? If we want to understand hope, we have to see Christ in all things. If we want to understand it more truly and fully. So hope is embodied through our minds being engaged, through our eyes being open, and then finally, through our hearts burning. This is my favorite part of this story in this passage, starting in verse 32. After Jesus had left them, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. They told what had happened on the road and how he is known to them in the breaking of bread. As Christ was with them and as Christ spoke the word of God to them, their hearts burned, right? They had a Bruce Springsteen and Johnny Cash experience as they both famously sing about fire. And Christ causes fire in people's hearts and in their bellies to go forth as he opened what? What you have in your lap. Right now, this is what he opened to them. The word of God. This would be a great encouragement internally as their hearts were burning to assure them of their faith or to open them up to new faith for the first time. But this would also be a great hope externally to them. And that's where the story ends. What do they do with burning hearts? I think they're internally encouraged and inspired 
by the word of God. But then externally, what do they do with burning hearts? They move into mission to tell others about what has happened. And there's a lot that we could say about mission. One thing I would say, that's who we are as a people. That's who we are as a church. We are fastidiously committed to being a people that are on mission with burning hearts to share what God has done. But when we do that, you know it's not just for those who are listening that might need to hear. It's an amazing thing that happens with regard to hope. When you share it, guess what happens subtly? You start to believe it. Like more and more. When you have to articulate the gospel to somebody that doesn't understand, not only is it beneficial for them, it's beneficial for you. I love to hear stories, and I love to be able to participate when I engage in a conversation with a person and they start to see the light for the first time. Without fail, something happens within me, and I think, oh my God, this is really true. And I need to hear that, because I doubt it often. Burning hearts have an effect internally and externally. Hope is holistically manifested. Did you catch it? In our mind, in our eyes, in our hearts. Do you see it? So the Cardinals won the World Series in 2011 in Game 7 in St. Louis. Something about the story that I didn't share with you is in Game 6 when I was on my couch here in Knoxville... I didn't have my phone with me, and at one point between innings, between one of the two extra innings, I realized that I had missed a bunch of calls from my best friend in Memphis. I had no idea why he was trying to call me, and I definitely wasn't interested in talking to him in the midst of all the drama that was going on. And then finally, he sent me a text, and he said, dude, you have to call me. And so at one point between innings, I called him, and he said, hey, if the Cardinals win, I've got a ticket to game seven for you. And at that point, they were still down by two. And so I was intrigued before to begin with. Can you imagine the intrigue that happened over the next Not only knowing that my team could go to game seven to win the World Series, but also knowing that I could be a part of it. And they did. And I did, and it was amazing. Here's the truth. Christ wins. Like forever. Game seven. He won. And there's no other game. There's no other series. And it's great to recognize that from a distance, but there's nothing like being there with him in it. Sound too good to be true? Or so good that it must be true? You decide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for meeting us where we are in the places of belief in the places of seeking, in the places of skepticism. We thank you that you give a message that is far more real than worldly optimism. 
We thank you that you give us a message of gospel and Christian hope. We pray that you would take that message and that you would rub it into our lives, especially the parts of our lives where we had hoped. We pray that we would hope again by your grace. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.